If you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans chapter 2. We are going to be picking up right where we left off last week. And really, there was an abrupt, there's kind of an abrupt, uh, we stopped in a sort of a weird place last week. Uh, If your Bible kind of breaks it down by, you know, paragraphs and stuff like that, it probably looks like we sort of stopped um, right in the middle of something. But there's a reason for that. And it's really that that the passage we were in last week is so closely connected to the one that we're going to be looking at this week. um, And they're tied so well together, but they're still talking about distinct things that each requires really its own kind of treatment of. So we're going to read... continue on um, in Romans chapter 2, starting um, in verse 5, and um, we're going to read through to the end of verse 11. I'll put it up on the screen here. So this is Romans 2, 5 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes this. Oh, it still says 1 through 4 up there. I didn't change that. So 5 through 11. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath For yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury." There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. We'll stop right there. Boy, who says you have to stop and do a Christmas series to talk about joyful, fun things, right? Last week we talked about... Uh, sort of this collective guilt, and, um, and we talked about what it is that brings us to God, and that being his kindness is what brings us back to him despite the sin and the, and, and the wreckage and the death we experience in our life and in the world around us. And it really jumps right into what we talk about this morning, um, which is this idea of God's wrath, this idea of God's wrath based on something called God's judgment, uh, as we talk about this passage, we're uh, uh, unavoidably talking about this idea of reward. That those who uh, live one way will receive one kind of reward, and those who live another way will receive another kind of reward. I was always the kid who failed at earning a reward. I'll just say that right now. I was always the one who just couldn't keep my eye on the prize. And so as a result, I continually found myself disappointed with always getting to the end of a challenge, getting to the end of a task, getting to the end of the thing I was working towards, and then just barely squeaking by. Uh, It wasn't that I didn't want it or care about it. Um, I had people often in my life saying to me, you could do it, you could make it, work hard, and you'll do well. Uh, You've got potential. I cared how people saw me. Um, But in the end, most of the time, I just kind of got tired and lazy. Just kind of got exasperated. More than anything, I gave in to the instant gratification 
of what was comfortable and easy in the moment right now. And I forgot about the better thing down the road. I wanted reward now, and if it was coming later, I just couldn't really wait most of the time. So that's me, okay? So chances are, if uh, someone who was different than that, maybe when they were younger, or has lived a different life than me, they might choose to talk this morning about how if we work really hard, then the good news is that there will be wonderful, rich reward at the end, and so let's all go do that. But because I'm a failure, I'm going to talk to you guys about failure this morning. Uh, Paul makes it very clear to the church in Rome He will render to each one of us according to his works. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So he will render to each one of us according to his works. Gee, that sounds an awful lot like works-based salvation. The idea that if you work hard and are a good person and do the right things, that God will reward you. Isn't that not what the gospel is about? Isn't that not what Christianity says will bring us life? He tends to go to kind of a negative place with this, Paul does, by saying, uh, because of all the things we've talked to up until this point, Uh, The bad news is you're storing up wrath for yourself. He will render to each one of us according to his work, says Paul. One of the most natural things in life is this idea that if you work hard, that there will be reward at the end, and that if you do badly, that there will be punishment at the end. But we struggle to see how God could work that way, especially when it comes to the punishment at the end, which is what Paul seems to be talking so clearly about here. If we don't understand rightly the concept of God's divine judgment, if we don't understand correctly the concept of God's wrath, then the good news of the gospel will simply be information that isn't relevant very much to us or is always for someone else or other people more in need of it. How can a loving God actually condemn his own children to hell? How could the God of love that we talk about actually allow his children, his creation, to experience eternal torment like what we read about, not just even in the Old Testament, but quite a bit in the New Testament too? How could a loving God tell us that we will all sin and that we are all punished forever because of that. How is this a part of the message of good news that we are supposed to be the people of? I'll tell you right now, even if this isn't a problem for you personally, even if you go, that's never been an issue for me, that doesn't bother me, I can tell you it is one of the most significant reasons that other people choose not to believe in the gospel. Because it seems like the idea of God's wrath in all of its horror 
is incompatible with the rest of the gospel, with any possible idea of a God who loves and who cares about his children and his creation. One scholar simply put it this way. He said the concept really of wrath and reward that the Bible tells us about and ascribes to God simply seems beneath the God that we talk about in the Bible. Does it not? Seems kind of like if he's as big and as amazing as we say he is, if he is as transcendent as we describe him in all of his ultimate power and glory, then the idea that he just kind of gives out reward and punishment for the things that we do in this life almost seems too human. Seems too much like the way we operate. How can a God of love condemn people to eternal punishment? I want to look at something outside of Romans to get a little bit of a clear idea of what the Bible teaches us about this. I want to look at one of the Gospels because you may, not, you may be surprised to hear this, but of all the people in Scripture, Jesus talks about eternal punishment and suffering and hell the most. If you have a still have your Bible, uh, which you probably should, um, shouldn't have gone anywhere, you can turn to Luke 16. I want to read you a parable, and it's a very interesting parable that Jesus tells. It's a parable that has a few distinctive qualities and traits that uh, you don't see in some other parable, in all the other parables that Jesus recounts and gives, and if you don't have a Bible to turn to, I'll put it up on the screen. Can you guys, can you guys cycle through these as I read this? Because I'll get all distracted with my fancy clicker here. I want to read you the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man. Now, this is a parable. This is a, a parable that Jesus told in Luke 16, 19. It's a parable that Jesus told uh, to people he was ministering to. These are the words of Jesus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in the manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, fathers, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. 
And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should be risen from the dead. Foreshadowing. Jesus tells this parable to people during his ministry. Now, this is the only parable where a person is given a name. When he gives the name Lazarus, the rich man doesn't even get a name. And we see some incredibly, like the basics of how God's wrath works in this parable. As Jesus is teaching in love to people about how that actually all works together. What do we know and understand about God's wrath? Is, what we know and understand about it is clear to us in this parable, and it's, it's, it's easy to see. The first thing that we see about God's wrath is that it is always the result of God's judgment. So God's wrath is not something that comes uh, simply to, uh, because God enjoys causing pain and suffering. God enjoys Wrath. It doesn't come because God picks some people and decides, I just don't really like them. And then other people and is like, you're okay with me. Don't worry about that. God's wrath doesn't come also because of his desire to try to rehabilitate people with it. We talked about this last week. How does God lead us to repentance? Kindness and love, not punishment. So the wrath of God is not intended to make you change your mind and turn around and do something different. God isn't a God who says, oh, let's just wait for them to reach rock bottom, hit rock bottom, take out all the safety nets from under them, and then they will repent. He uses his kindness to bring us to repentance. His wrath is not there to try to convince us or persuade us of anything. The wrath of God, the torment we read about, is the result always of the judgment of God, which means he's not a vigilante. He is actually the one sitting in the judgment seat saying, this is the penalty for the crime that has been committed, for the wrong that has occurred. God's wrath is always, always the result of God's judgment and nothing else. Judgment against things done wrong, things that are sinful and that are the opposite of what he intended and what he desired. So I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is, to the best that I can tell, to the best of my understanding, and most theologians and Bible interpreters would agree that the physical fiery torment that we read about in Scripture is most likely metaphorical. It will not literally be a place where you are burning alive constantly. The, e even the, uh, the, the great theologian Jonathan Edwards, who told the most famous fire and brimstone sermon ever, sinners in the hands of an angry God, who described us as people who are being held over the fiery flames in the hand of God and deserve to be let go of, dangling like from a spider's web, about to land in the flames. He himself was using imagery and metaphor to evoke a response in people to try desperately to get them to understand just the kind of suffering they would endure in God's wrath and in punishment. So the good news is, 
It's not literally going to be fire and pain, tor- torture and pain that we often read about and that we assume. Those are metaphorical things. The bad news is it's going to be worse. That's the bad news. The bad news is uh, that's our best way of trying to describe to people in a vivid way how bad it will be. It's going to be worse than that kind of physical torture. And the reason it's going to be worse is because God's judgment, God's wrath is not just the result of his judgment. The reason it will be worse than that is because God's wrath is the result of our choice, our choosing. We choose things that lead to wrath. And ultimately, the torment that we will experience, the pain and suffering that we will endure is characterized in the Bible by primarily being total separation from God and all that is good and being given over to the things that we've chosen in the place of God. That is key. Eternal suffering and God's wrath are us being given over to the things that we want anyways. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. Well, according to everyone who has written about it in Scripture, it is really bad. You see, this is the nature of choosing things that lead to death, is it not? We choose them thinking, that's not so bad. And people say, it's really bad. And we go, eh, not in my case, not in my instance. You probably aren't seeing how how nuanced I am and how carefully balanced these things are in my life. It is the grace and the mercy of God that enables us to not be given over to the things that we choose in place of him throughout our entire lives. We are going to keep coming back again and again and again to the concept of idols as we talk about the gospel in Romans because because idols are the things that we look to for life instead of God and we all are prone to do it because God created us. He wired us to worship him and find life in him and if we don't find life in him naturally because of the fall and because we live in the flesh, we are little like idol-making factories that go around just creating those idols out of other things in our lives. The good things that God gives us become these ultimate things in our lives that we look to in for our hope and our joy and our peace. Because let's be honest, it is a struggle to find hope and joy and peace in God like we do in other stuff. How weird and schizophrenic is it that we talk about hope, joy, peace, and love during the holiday season, a time when it's literally easier to find hope, joy, peace, and love in other things that are not Jesus, right? That's like, the, that's like the difficulty of it. All the other stuff that we enjoy and that we love and that we find hope and love and joy and peace in outside of God himself, it's all like amped up during the holidays, all the people, all the stuff that we buy and that we enjoy, uh, even, even the things that we can do in our jobs as we look to, to, taking, uh, to trying to accomplish as much before the very end of the year, whatever it is, like we're experiencing on steroids all the goodness of the things that we find life in outside of God himself. And God's wrath is life without him and anything other than that thing that we choose. It is God saying, You want something other than me. I simply leave you to it. (laughs) 
Eternal punishment is the natural consequences of us being left to our choices and our sin and separation from God for all of eternity. This parable tells the story of a rich man, a man who has no name and he doesn't need to. He probably doesn't mind it because if he wants to be known as anything in the world, it's probably a rich man. This rich man considers himself better than Lazarus. We know that. And, and Jesus, in his compassion, decides to give Lazarus a name, show that Lazarus is a person, that Lazarus matters to him because he is known by him. This rich man is described as a rich man. Why? Because uh, that which he found his identity in, that which he found his hope and his joy in, was his riches. It's simple. It's a story often told. Sure, none of us would fall into that trap, but we know people that are like that. It's a very clear description of the idol and the God in this man's life. He spends his life pursuing riches, pursuing wealth, pursuing abundance, pursuing probably the success that leads to those things, and has a tremendously high view of himself, and there's probably lots of other people who do as well. It would never occur to him in a million years to even look down upon this man and to acknowledge that he exists because this man has done everything wrong. And I've done everything right. There are fascinating things that we see about the nature of God's wrath in this parable. One of them is that this man is not trying to get out from where he is. Uh, his response is not to try to get out, but his first response is to ask that Lazarus come and serve him. Has he learned anything? No. Has he learned any lessons? No. In fact, he looks up going, obviously Abraham is going to understand that like I need someone to come and help comfort me in all of this pain and suffering that I'm enduring. And so send Lazarus. We all know Lazarus is someone who should be serving me still and serving people still. Would you let him come and bring me comfort, he says. You see, uh, this man is experiencing the suffering that comes when we are given over to the thing that we choose to have our identity in other than God. Eternal punishment will be, above anything else, you and I, separated from God, finally given over to the thing that we want anyway. And the torment of what that will do to us is worse than fire. It's worse than physical torture and pain. Just like a log in a fire being broken down, this is what we experience when given over to the things that we would choose for ourselves. If you've ever known someone who struggled with addiction, you know exactly what it looks like for a person to love something and for that thing to rob them of everything. But the nature of addiction is that it starts out, you just need a little, and then you need more, and then you need more. This is the way all idols work. It starts out as some, just a little, you get a taste. And then you see that it's good and you like it and then you need more and then you want more because the more that we care about and are wrapped up in and find our identity in that thing, the more of that thing that we need in order to be satisfied because it has to fill a very big void in our heart that's only supposed to be filled by God. 
And so as a person gives themselves over to this thing in greater and greater abundance, more of life has to go away. More of life is the cost of that thing. The cost raises itself, and there's more wreckage, there's more destruction, and the result is that not only have I given so much of myself to this thing that I need, but it has begun to burn down the rest of my life. Like a raging wildfire, it consumes other things. We all have things in our lives that we are prone to make into God. And God's wrath is us simply being given over to that. C.S. Lewis put it well when he said this. He said, in describing those that are experiencing this torment, they enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. The doors of hell, he says, are locked from the inside. This is the absolute purest description of what eternal suffering and God's wrath will be. What separation from him will look like. And you might hear this and think, many people will hear this and many people who are suffering would say, uh, but I didn't choose anything that extreme, right? Yes, there's, there might be things in my life, but there's no way in the world that there's anything in my life that I've given the place that God should have in my life. First of all, if you find yourself saying that like instinct, you're totally wrong, okay? If your instinct is to go, no, there's no way that would be me, guaranteed it's you, okay? Because you've presumed way too much. And if you were walking along a road and ran into Jesus, you better run the other way because he is going to just put all kinds of holes in whatever presumptions you have about how, how you're above all of this and how you're different from all of this. Because the truth is, because we live in the flesh, we are prone to do this thing. The truth of it is, whether it's your job, whether it's your income, whether it's your material comfort, whether it's your place in the world and the country that you live in, whether it is your marriage, whether it is your very family and your children, you are prone to take what, what you find, what you want to find your identity in the most and make that thing into your ultimate thing, who you really are. You're willing to let God come in and make things better. You're willing to let him fill the very neatly compartmentalized area that you've left for him because you believe that God can make everything a little bit nicer and better, sure, especially around the holidays, right? But this thing is this thing. And God's wrath is God allowing us to have that thing in its fullness, to be who we are and what we want to be, and to be in separation from him, which is ultimately what we are choosing. Every time we choose that thing over God, we're saying, I want this thing and I'm okay with the separation from you that it brings. Is it possible that good things that God himself has made could keep us from him? Absolutely. And we let that happen constantly. We see that the wrath of God is always the result of his judgment. And we see that the wrath of God is something that is chosen. Now, there's also um, an eternal reward that is spoken of 
here, uh, it made reference to as this man, Lazarus, is there with Abraham. Uh, Paul talks about it saying that there will be a, a day of judgment. And on that day of judgment, God will give good things to those who have earned the good things. They will experience reward. They will experience what we call paradise. And what in the world is that going to be like is the question many of us would ask. Eternal reward is this. It is being in the very presence of God and living as he initially intended for us to live with him. Eternal reward is us living in a place that the Bible describes again and again as a place that is prepared for us. The Bible says again and again in all sorts of different ways, very specifically at times, a place is being prepared for you to be with him. My father's house, he's creating rooms and all these things. Like eternal reward, eternal life is us and God. But it is also, we describe it as paradise because it is the fullness of things, the way things are intended and meant to be. I've been watching a lot of Seinfeld recently because I just do what Netflix tells me to do and I watch whatever it puts up on my screen. And I was watching this interaction between George and Jerry and Seinfeld. They're sitting in a diner. They're having the same conversations they always have. And Jerry simply starts rubbing his eyes, looks at George, and he says, what are we doing? What, what is this? What is this? Right? And he says, we, we, we're children. These are not lives. We're children. And George, without skipping a beat, immediately says, oh, we are, we are not men. These are not lives. I will tell you that. And I was watching this, and I was talking to some people this week about the fact that this conversation could literally happen anywhere at any time, right? Like anything that you're doing, you probably have experienced a point where you could stop and just be like, what is this? This isn't a family, right? You're like, take your, let's go look at Christmas lights, right? Let's get everybody ready. Let's go do all that stuff. Let's get it all going. You're, you're there. You're in the middle of it. Everything's a disaster. You're like, what is this? This isn't a family. This isn't looking at Christmas. That's for sure, Right? 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 What is this, right? This isn't, this isn't dinner. This isn't dinner time. Uh, that's not what this thing is, right? right? I, 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 I devote myself to being, uh, being in a, in a, with someone that I love. I've committed my life to them. What is this? This isn't a marriage, right? Whatever this is that we're doing, right? Right? We have our jobs and we go, uh, we love them and they're great and, and we want to accomplish things through them. And then we have those points where you stop, you could just stop and be like, what is this? What are we doing? Like, what are we really doing here anyway? Right? That's never happened anywhere anybody works, right? You see, the fact is, like, like all of the things that we love and all of the things that we will invest ourselves in will fall short. And, and so it's like we pursue these things. But then we also are always, if we're honest and we're self-aware, we're also going to kind of be let down. We're going to be like, oh, family's so important. Family's the most important. And then we're going to find ourselves occasionally just being like, man, I thought it would be different from this, or I was hoping that, or, well, no, it's not that I'm disappointed. It's just that I guess I kind of figured that, that they would like me more, you know, or that, or that I would like them more, you know, uh, or they would move out at some point or whatever, right? 
in marriage going like, man, I wanted nothing more than this. I wanted nothing more than this. And I'm willing to give anything of myself for this thing. And then those moments in it that it's just like, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just like, is this, is this it, you know? A famous line from the movie, is this as good as it gets, you know? We work really hard, have these jobs. You might, it's even harder if it's like, no, it's something I love doing. It's something I'm good at doing that people tell me I'm good at doing. And then having those moments here and there that are like, but like, I, I guess I, I thought there would be a point where it would feel even more fulfilling than this. There was a point when I thought that people would appreciate what I'm doing more, when I thought that they would take care of me better for my efforts, when I thought that, uh, that my retirement might look different as a result, right? We often find ourselves in life, especially looking back, going like, it wasn't what I thought it would be. And there's a reason for that. It's because all of the things that we love and that we invest ourselves in and that we enjoy and that we see good and beauty in are flawed things. And so we will spend our lives often pursuing these things um, and, and yet realizing that we're kind of feeling let down by them in one way or another as well. The good news about heaven, the good news about paradise, the good news about it is that it is not just described in the Bible as you and God just like on clouds with harps all the time. It really is this idea of the fullness of all good things. Because we know what it is to not feel fully satisfied by even the best things of this world. And that is a signpost and it's something that is pointing us to the fact that there is an ultimate best that we look forward to. That, that when we are in our Father's house, in the place he has prepared for us, in his presence, that we will be fulfilled in that, in a way that we simply cannot be fulfilled in this world. The truth is, when a person becomes a Christian, when a person accepts the forgiveness of Jesus and develops a relationship with God and begins living in Him, we begin eternal life at that point. We begin this relationship with God that will not cease, but will only get better and better and then get exponentially better into the next life as we are no longer affected by the flesh and by sin and by this fallen world in which we live. So what that means is that we have the ability to live, to begin living in eternity now. The only thing keeping us from that is we have God in our life, and we have all the other stuff in our lives. And the question is, am I choosing God over these other things? Do I actually see beauty in who God is? Do I actually have a desire for God to be a bigger part of my life? Because the closer that I become with him, the more I get, the closer I get to this eternal heaven that awaits me. I was recently talking to a, a few different people who were, uh, I would come to realize, uh, less than a week away from death. 
And as we were talking about God who is our shepherd, who walks alongside us, we were talking about the fact that the good news is that as you lay in your home in your final days of life, if you lay in a hospital bed in your final days of life, if you are completely alone without anyone there with you even, that you are not alone if you know God and you know the shepherd. In fact, you might be surrounded by hundreds of people who you love and adore and care about, but the truth is there is one who will walk with you from this life in to the next. There is one good shepherd who will lead the sheep to the next pasture to feed, who will lead them beside the still waters, and where will he lead them through the valley of the shadow of death? The good news is that shepherd is the shepherd that you can know right now. We simply get so distracted by all the other stuff. For us, the way it works is life is like a tube of toothpaste, right? And some are just, no, we can, I can get more out of this thing, right? You got to roll it from the end. That's the deal, right? You start with the squeezes, and then eventually you got to move your way up to the rolling at the end, right? But we're going to get there. Oh, there's way more in there, right? Does anybody here ever cut open a tube of toothpaste to get more out? Raise your hand if you've ever cut open a tube of toothpaste. Okay, thank you, because I have. Thank you. This is life for us. I mean, to us, it's like, no, I'm not saying I don't want to go there or be there or enjoy that eternal reward. What I'm saying is I want to squeeze every bit of toothpaste out of that tube, and then I'm ready to go. Our, our obsession with doing that is us choosing all of these other things over and above the, the glory of God himself. And if we can just take a little bit of a break from squeezing all the toothpaste out of the tube and go... I want to be closer to the shepherd now, the shepherd who walks with me in this life and in the next. Like, we literally can live in heaven more now. We just simply have to choose to allow God's to be a reality and a presence in our life. We have to choose to seek to find joy and fulfillment and love and completion in him and not expect it to be in these other things. We then find eternal life in him in this world now, but we also enjoy these things in the way they're meant to be enjoyed. They don't become idols. They don't eat us up. They don't destroy us. We don't desperately need them to a degree that's unhealthy. I've talked to people who are older, who are near the end of life, and kind of are going, you know, the, the toothpaste is coming out of the tube. There's not much left here. I don't really know what to do now. And the, the beauty of, of what the Bible tells us about eternal life and life in God is that, is that you literally can grow closer to God, even if it feels like what else is there to squeeze out of the tube. And experience heaven here and now. What we also see in this parable with this rich man and Lazarus is we see this idea of maybe trying to change this outcome. This idea of this rich man saying, well, hang on a second. I want to uh, send, uh, can, can you send Lazarus? Can, can you give word to my brothers, right? The question, of course, is what then will change the outcome? What will change the outcome? Because that's what's important. We don't like the idea that we will get to a point where we are made aware of these things, but it's too late. And Jesus' message through this parable is a really clear one. It is that you were already aware of these things. It's his message. 
His message is, you were aware of them. You chose to find life in these things. God has merely removed his grace and his mercy and has left you to them. The rich, rich man believes that if Lazarus raises from the dead, people will believe, but Jesus says, no, they won't. Jesus says, people will see him come. They might see him resurrect. The prophets gave warning. The prophets gave words. People explained. God used signs and wonders and many miraculous things. People still choose what people choose. Jesus' response in the parable through his teaching is it isn't true that we just need more information, more revelation, God to be clearer with us, and we will then choose the right thing. The Bible describes the situation that people are in as a choice. It describes it so much in so many different ways. It describes it in the Gospels more than anywhere. We read in John, it says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We had a choice. We saw the light. We choose and we chose something that was darkness. Jesus would, would say this in Matthew 16. He would tell his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Sound familiar? The language that is used throughout the Bible is this. You have a clear choice to make. Will you spend this life living life? If you choose to save your life, you forfeit your very soul. Woe. He who chooses to find life must lose it. The problem isn't that we need uh, more miracles. The problem isn't that we need clearer revelation. The problem isn't that we need people to explain it for us even better. The problem is we must open our eyes and see our propensity, our willingness, our temptation constantly to choose our own life at the cost of our very own soul, to see the light that comes and to reject it and choose instead the darkness. As we read about earlier in Romans, to exchange the truth of God for a lie. All of this language is people making active choices when given the information. So the response of Jesus, the response of Paul again and again is... So the question of what will change the outcome? What will change the outcome is the person who is living, deciding to see exactly what's going on around them. One of the things that you realize is, okay, seriously though, if a person rose from the dead right in front of me, it would get my attention. It obviously got a lot of people's attention uh, when Jesus was resurrected. That was the beginning of the church. 
His disciples saw him resurrected. People see him resurrected, things like that. The reason, what Jesus is pointing to here, and this is like really, really incredibly like deep, like this is the way people works kind of stuff that you really have to think about. What would happen if through fear we were made aware of all of this in an, in an irreversible way, right? In a way that it was almost like the choice was taken out of our hands, right? God shows up in the sky and he's like, do it. Here's eternal punishment. Here's what it is. It Make the right choice. See ya. And then he leaves. What would fear lead us to do? You know, the, the, the single biggest problem in the sinful heart, the single biggest problem that man deals with is self-centeredness, okay? The fall caused us to no longer be God-focused, but to be ourselves-focused, to say, I don't trust God to be in charge of my life. I don't trust that God is the best thing. I trust that I am the best thing, that I am the one who knows better. I am the one who chooses wiser. I am the one who can be in charge of me. Uh, and it's not just about being in charge of me either. It is literally that we live in a world where everyone is self-centered, are we not? We live in a world where our propensity is to be like, nope, sorry, me instead of you, right? Our natural tendency is to be self-absorbed instead of the way God created us. And what does fear do to us? What would fear do to a person? Fear would make us even more self-absorbed. What would we do if there was fear? We would, we'd go, okay, here's what we got to do. We got to get every law we can come up with, right? We got to get every list of every rule and every possible thing that we can possibly find because I am terrified right now. And we got to do anything. I got to do anything I can to make sure that I am a good person. I got to do everything I can to make sure I am, no, get out of here. I don't want to talk about you. I don't want to care about you. I don't want to think about you. I definitely don't want to think about them. No, I got to figure this thing out for me because I have to make sure that I am in the right place here. Jesus, and this is brilliant, Jesus knows that fear will not lead people to repentance. What leads us to repentance? God's kindness leads us to repentance. So even if Lazarus came back, even if people experienced a miraculous thing in resurrection from the dead, and it made them completely fearfully aware of just the kind of painful torment that was coming. Would they choose to be less self-absorbed as a result of that? I don't think so. God's kindness leads us to repentance. It is only through the loving compassion and the mercy of Jesus that we will break free from our self-absorbed lives to finally live in freedom and love. If heaven is God, then we must choose God, not simply to avoid hell. We must choose where life is found, not simply turn away from where it isn't. Jesus talked about eternal, about God's wrath more than anyone else in the Bible. Jesus could, because Jesus showed love better than any person who ever walked the face of the earth. And it was only through love that people would hear and understand about the nature of God's wrath and what he wants for his children. The end of this is simple. There will be tribulations and distress for every human being who does evil. 
the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. If you want to sum up what this has all been about for Paul, it is that last sentence there. God shows no partiality. You see, what he's doing is he's making a case, and he's kind of making a case against the Jews, the Jewish Christians. You notice he's being pretty thorough here. He's saying there are going to be people who do well, and they will receive reward, people who do wrong, and they will receive punishment. And it won't matter if you're a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian. It won't matter if, you're, if you were a Jewish person or a, just a, a, a Gentile, a, a barbarian, a heathen, somebody who didn't grow up around any of this stuff. God is not, and this is really hard for the Jewish people to hear at this point, God is not going to let anybody off the hook. He doesn't have favorites. He doesn't show partiality. This is so hard for us to wrap our minds around because like partiality is, is, is as much a part of our lives as water and food and air, right? Partiality means I choose one person to spend my life with in a committed relationship. That's partiality. I'm partial. Got to be honest. Partiality is like, I love more my kids way more than your kids. That's partiality. Got to be honest. That's how it works. Partiality is, you do a good job. Here's more work and more money. That's how partiality works. Partiality is what makes the world go round. Partiality is the way that we only know to operate with each other in this world that we live in. The idea of like everyone being on this completely even playing field where there's no partiality is like blowing our minds because it just doesn't make any sense how it could work. And we expect, we kind of presume that partiality, it's such a part of our lives, it's such a part of this world, that it must be a part of the kingdom of God and it must be a part of the way that God sees us. But it really, really isn't. I'm going to give you a little bit of like a, like a cheater kind of guide to the end of this story here, and it's this. Uh, the reason Paul's making this case, the case that he's making is kind of a downer because he's saying, here's the deal, everybody. You, God's wrath. You, God's wrath. You can't do it. You can't do it. You don't measure up. You're, wor- you're the worst. Nobody measures up. Nobody can do it. See you later. You're like, thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. No one's good enough. No one can do it. Why? Because God really does reward based on the things that we do. God is a God of justice. God is a judge. And the judge rewards for the good behavior and not the bad. And the, bad. the problem is this judge kind of only has a one-sided job at this point. Because everyone's doing bad stuff. The, the, sort, of, the sort of sneak peek to the end of the story, the, the end of the gospel is that what Paul's clearly setting us up for is the fact that there is only one way that anybody gets judged favorably in this. There is only one way that you ever can be enough, and it won't be because you did the right things. It'll be because of Jesus. Paul is building a case, and it's simple. Eternity is the natural result of our works and our choices and who we become in this life. Eternity is the natural result of those things. And we only have hope in Jesus, not in the good things that we do. If you have been a Christian for a long time, Paul is telling you God, does not, God is not partial to you. 
if you grew up in a Christian home. Like literally, if you grew up in a Christian home, it's probably easy for you to think God's partial to me, but he's not. If you're raising kids in a Christian home, if you, if you have Christian friends, if you're very involved at church, if you're involved in leadership and you serve, if you go on missions trips and do wonderful things, God does not show partiality to you because of any of that stuff. Paul's trying to be as clear as possible to a people who felt that they truly were you know, just a little bit more deserving of God's grace and his mercy than anyone else. He says, listen, if we're going to go on merit, bad news. You're all doing a pretty terrible job. The good news is that life is found in Jesus. The good news is the hope is in what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, every week, that we talk about this. Every week that we look in Romans, every week that we look at your word and we encounter these really difficult topics of your wrath and your reward. We're hearing only part of a story and it's a story that only makes sense when we understand about what Jesus did and that we can have life in him. Father, it is really, really hard for us to understand how a loving God could allow people to spend eternity in torment. It is hard for us to understand how you could love your children and be omnipotent and still allow that to happen. Father, would you give us the humility and the self-awareness to realize that we are prone to choose things other than you again and again. Through your mercy and your grace, you bring us back to you. You give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to see the beauty of you, to hear the truth of you, and to respond and to give you the right place in our lives and in our hearts. But Father, it is our, it is our nature, it is in our sinful nature to want to choose these other things. God, they consume us and we let them. It seems appealing on this side of heaven. It seems like it can pretty easily build a good life for us. We can enjoy ourselves. We can do well. We can even be good people in our own minds. We don't realize what it leads to. And that one day when we're handed over to these things and them alone, they'll eat us up. God, would you give us a glimpse of your beauty and your goodness and your holiness and your glory? Would you let that be so magnified in our eyes and in our minds and our hearts that we would choose you over these other things that cannot fulfill us, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.